hey, uh, you may have noticed this past Saturday, you got an extra episode of Stuff You Should Know. Yeah. S-Y-S-K selects. That's right. It was not a mistake. What we decided to do here after nine plus years is, um, you know, maybe you don't know that we have 900 plus episodes. Uh, so we're going to start throwing out a, a, well, I don't want to call it a rerun. Well, no, it's a, it it's a hand-selected, <laughs> curated episode by us. Yeah, a classic, if you will, yeah. that uh, Josh will pick one out, I'll pick one out. Um, might be newsy, it might just be one of our favorites, and we're going to run those on Saturday. If you haven't heard it, check it out. If you have, we'd love for you to listen again. Sure. So check it out in your podcast feed. It's as simple as that. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck, lean on my shoulder, Bryant. And Jerry, how about a hug, Roland? Uh, no, actually, I'm, I'm sorry. Jerry's here in spirit. Our guest producer today is Noel. That's right. Noel, my beard heals all brown. Yes. Everybody knows it's Noel Brown. Are you using your empathy voice? Yeah, is it working? You ain't fooling nobody. <laughs> oh, really? It's the beady eyes that say, I cut you for $10. Oh, how are you, sir? I'm feeling um, empathetic. Good. I'm doing good. I uh, I have some very strong opinions on empathy, and not just empathy, but empathy research in particular, as I'm sure you're not at all surprised to hear. I'm not at all surprised to hear. Did, did you come to the same or similar conclusions as I did? I don't know yet, because we don't talk about this stuff beforehand. That's true. That's how we, that's the magic. Going, <laughs> going blind. Did you know that there's like an Atlanta magic thing now? What do you mean? Like a... Cl- Society? Something. Something. Along, I just saw a sign for it in Old Fourth Ward, but there's like a, seems to be a legitimate magician's, what's that castle in LA? Oh, the Magic Castle. It's not that, but it's probably something that the people who do the Atlanta thing are, I'm sure, aware of the Magic Castle. Probably. And then you did a double take at the sign and it disappeared in a poof of smoke. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. I went to the Magic Castle once. Lucky. Yeah, it's awesome. I think we had this conversation because I asked yeah. you if you'd seen that documentary about the kids' competition at the Magic Castle. Yeah, I have not, but um, it's really good, Chuck. Yeah, if if you can, I highly recommend it. If you can get in, you got to know somebody. You got to know Ben Stiller. <laughs> oh, really? No, there was a movie that he was in that took place in the Magic Castle, and he was like the bad guy. I think I don't remember what it was. Huh? Maybe it was that documentary. <laughs> well, let's talk empathy, Chuck. All righty. Let's Wait, hold on. It. I have an intro. I have an intro. Oh, okay. Are you familiar with Frank Rich, the the left-leaning, well, lefty as heck essayist? Uh, I don't think so. He uh, he's good. He's about as he's about as good an essayist as you'll find on the left. Okay. Um, he's a consultant on Veep. He just he's hilarious and he knows his stuff. Great. Right. He usually writes for Harper's, but he's also got a regular gig in New York Magazine and in New York Magazine recently. He published a column, I think, this week. Um, well, this week as of when we're recording this. And it, I think it was called like No Sympathy for the Hillbilly or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was basically, and this is really astounding coming from him, but it was basically him saying, you know what? Um, I, I know that on the left, people tend to be bleeding heart liberals and want to empathize with everybody and feel everyone else's pain and understand where people are coming from. But I believe that if you voted for Trump and you're angry, or if you, I believe if you're angry at the people who voted for Trump or angry that Trump is president, you should be angry at the people who voted him into, into uh, office as well. And he basically is beating a drum which I also started to see in other places as well, where it's like, no, you don't have to understand people who voted for Trump. You don't have to love your enemy. Let's just go to war with these people. <laughs> and it's it, it, and it's legitimate. He's totally serious, too. And it amounts to basically a call to go to the dark side, to resist everything that you know the left has traditionally prided itself on and just go full bore like culture war uh, against the right. And um, it, it just seems like a really bad idea to me. But 
one of the things that stuck out to me about it the most was that it was so contrary to the um, ethos, the prevailing thought of the time, or at least what made up the Obama administration, which was we need to be more empathetic. We need to understand yeah. people's plight more. And even after Hillary lost, people, one of the big postmortems was Hillary didn't connect with blue-collar workers who were out of work. She was totally out of touch with that. She right. couldn't empathize with them. Well, I think a further postmortem has been like Hillary could empathize with those people all day, but they hated her and they were never going to vote for her. And now Frank Rich is saying, so hate them back is the thing. Again, I disagree with that, but it really points out how what a fragile turning point we're at right now. Uh, this path in history in America. Are we going to stay and just keep trying to be empathetic? Or are we, again, just going to go full board to the dark side and, and just everybody's going to hate everybody who's dis, who's not like them? Wow. Quite an intro. Thank you. For a coastal elite. Oh, I'm not a coastal elite. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just like that phrase. I hope I'm not, man. I really don't think I am, and I hope people don't think I am. I I do stick my pinky in the air when I take sips of water, <laughs> and that water's been strained through a um, Franciscan monk's mouth first. I don't it's think the you, only water I'll drink. I don't think you can be a coastal elite if you uh, have your roots in Toledo. Right, exactly. You know, and I I I don't forget where I'm from, man. And my family, you know, has long roots in Tennessee and Mississippi. If you you know this by reading my Wikipedia page, right? Does it say that you're part Choctaw in there yet? <laughs> oh, I'm sure it will soon. <laughs> uh, all right, so we're talking empathy here. Um, a lot of this sounded familiar, so much so that I like quadruple checked that we had not done this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've just talked about it a lot, and namely, in uh, in our mirror neurons episode. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought about that one a lot when I was researching this. Well, I think it's definitely a component of empathy, but it's not to be confused with empathy. It's like Correct. part of it, I think, is the impression I have. Agreed. So um, empathy, if you look at our uh, not-so-great article, <laughs> uh, they do define it. Um, you know, everyone kind of knows what it is, but just to be clear, it's not sympathy. It's, a, it's if you can feel and share someone else's emotions is empathy. Uh, which is different than sympathy and that, uh, you're, don't, you're not feeling it, but you do care about it. Right, right. It's like, um, you can understand why someone would be feeling like they're feeling. It's intellectual. Yeah. So, like sympathy's from the brain and empathy is from, say, the heart. Yeah. And a lot of these words, when we get into the definitions of empathy and versus compassion, mm-hmm. it gets a little, uh, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like people are kind of splitting hairs with the nomenclature. That to me, Chuck, is a huge red flag that the field is not nearly as established as people like to think. Yeah. Like if there's still confusion on basic terms like empathy and sympathy. Yeah. And they're used interchangeably. uh, It just means that no one is doing the right kind of hardcore research or publishing the right kind of hardcore papers that say this is what it is or this is what it not. This is what it isn't. Yeah, agreed. I almost just said, this is what it not is. <laughs> this so is what no, it ain't. No coastal elite. Uh, but there was an original German word, um, Einfühlung, which means feeling into, and that's where empathy comes from. And if you talk to an expert or a researcher, um, these days they're going to talk about a couple of types of empathy, um, effective or maybe emotional empathy mm-hmm. and cognitive empathy. And, um, the distinction is, as it turns out, is pretty important. And to me, well, to me, this is where a little bit of the splitting hairs comes in. Because okay. as far as talking about um, effective empathy versus compassion, like is it the same thing? Or I'm sorry, cognitive empathy would be more like compassion because you're not really taking on someone else's pain. So compassion, I think, is even like a third word. This is so this is what I came up with. You've got cognitive empathy which is sympathy, right? You can understand why someone would be feeling a certain way. Yeah. Then you then you've got effective empathy or emotional which is, empathy which this right. one dude calls it. 
Okay. Which is like you're really putting yourself in that person's shoes and you're feeling how they're feeling right then. But then compassion, it seems to me, is the end goal of this. That's where you actually move to act. It's where you do something about it. It's where you put your hand uh, on someone's shoulder and say, it's going to be all right. Or, you know, here's a check for $500. Um, get some groceries with it. Who knows what you're going to do? But I think to me, compassion is the act, like the action, the end goal of empathy, whether it's cognitive or um, or effective. That's that's okay. what I think. And you know what? This field is so unestablished that I can just say that stuff. Yeah. And it's probably right. Let's yeah. just say that. <laughs> that's true. No one can really come along and say definitively that you're not right. Right. Uh, so, you know, to put giving you an example of what that might mean, effective or emotional empathy, um, if some, if you have a, a friend or family member going through a very hard time uh, and they're distraught and then you are also distraught just like they are, then that is definitely effective empathy whereas you're not just like oh man you know your your uncle passed away i'm really sorry to hear that and i feel terribly for you but mm-hmm. if if you are you know actively taking that on to the point where you're crying too and you didn't know the uncle because that would be the differentiation right it's like i you, think so you don't have a personal stake in it but you're still taking it on as right. if it is your own yes and then Depending on, on your view of things, and we'll talk a lot about this, there's this really great psychologist named Paul Bloom who has basically dedicated a lot of his life to shooting down ideas of how great empathy is. Yeah, I thought he was, I thought he made a lot of good points and some yeah, I didn't oh, quite he, agree with either, but. He, he's great. He's, he's really good at, at poking holes in the concept of empathy, but yeah. w- he points out that, um, that I guess it's probably good if somebody's something, someone's in a great mood and you're empathetic and sharing in that great mood and amplifying it. Yeah. But on the flip side of the coin, if somebody is in a horrifically, tragically sad mood and you're sitting there amplifying that by joining in part and parcel with it, then you're, you're doing a disservice. Right. Right. Yes. So in some, in some ways, um, well, I'll just say Paul Bloom's whole basic, his whole thesis, and I subscribe to it as well, is that cognitive is far and away the superior of the two types of empathy as far as the ultimate goal, which, again, to me is compassion. Yeah. You want to just pepper in some of his stuff as we go? Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, because here's a great spot, too. Uh, and this is one of the studies I imagine. Well, I don't know if you had a problem with it, but. I had a problem with a lot of these studies. Yeah, me too. Um, but there was a study, um, at least one, where psychologists said, um, how much money will you donate to develop a drug that would save one child's life? Um, and then another group was asked, how much would you donate to de- develop a drug that would save eight kids? And it was about the same answer. Um, where things changed was when they asked a third group about the one child, but they showed a picture of the kid and like, you know, said this is this is little Joey. He's 14 years old, and this is his sad little face. And then donations really shot up. And this is where, um, what was his name? Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom, the psychologist. Yeah, this is where Paul Bloom says that um, this emotional empathy is for the birds because a it's it's um, it's narrow, and b it's very like people tend to want to help people that are like them. So it's. Yeah. Uh, I mean, biased, is that the, the right word? Super biased, yeah. And and it, it makes no sense. Not only does it not scale upward as the number of people affect by, say, like a tragedy increase, it actually goes the other way, where the more people that are affected by something, the less empathetic a person tends to be. Whereas if, say, it's one person and you know that person's name and you see that person's picture on the news and, yeah, they look like you or your neighbor or your daughter, right. you're going to empathize a lot. Sure. But at the same time, there could be... You know, the same thing could be happening to 50,000 other people. And if you'll just vote a certain way, you can alleviate their suffering. You wouldn't lift a finger to do it, especially if it meant slightly higher taxes for you. So in that sense, empathy makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, he even quoted uh, Mother Teresa in his uh, in this essay, which is, um, quote, if I look at the mass, I will never act. If I look at the one, I will. So he's going with the the heavy hitters there. <laughs> Yeah, right. You know, when you bring Mother Teresa in there mm-hmm. to kind of make a point. smack. Yeah. But, you know, he makes a good point. Um, oh, yeah. Like, 
and and that study does I, I didn't have a big problem with that study because it does kind of prove that out. Right, that was Telia Koga and uh Ilana Ritov. They're psychologists. And then Ritov and another um co-author conducted another study where um that kind of pointed out one of the problems with empathy which was they said okay, um two different groups of people heard this that um that a vaccine maker cost a child her life. They right. killed a child because of the vaccine. Now, um, sh- should the vaccine maker be fined? And then one group was told that the fine would probably make the vaccine maker um, follow guidelines even more strictly and would probably prevent accidents. And then the other, further accidents. And then the um, the other group was told that this fine would probably make the vaccine maker get out of the business and more people would die because they couldn't get the vaccine. And both groups said that, yes, the vaccine maker should be punished with um, the highest fine possible. Right, with extreme prejudice. Right. So the the upshot of all of this is, is that especially with um, effective empathy, uh, as we understand it, we we... It doesn't, it doesn't follow any kind of rational guidelines and ra- the basis of rationality being that two is more important than one. Right. And empathy just doesn't go in that direction. Yeah. But, um, interestingly, um, while you can train yourself to be more empathetic, it definitely to me feels like something that you are sort of born with to a certain degree mm-hmm. or maybe in the formative years you might gain. Um, but, uh, in, in Bloom's, article he talks about babies and as as soon as a baby can get up and start getting around they're going to try and comfort like if you go into a preschool and there's another baby crying mm-hmm. you you will probably see another little baby walking over there and patting the little Dude. baby and stroking the baby there's nothing more adorable it's than that it's pretty adorable um and you know it happens in the animal kingdom um mm-hmm. although they they did note um this uh Franz de Waal the uh, primatologist mm-hmm notes that it kind of follows uh, humans in a way in that um, a chimpanzee might really um, like put like hug a victim of an attack, but it's got to be another chimp. Like if they're like, they will smash the brains out of another kind of monkey. Maybe if it wanders into their little village. Right. That to me kind of underscores this whole, this whole thing. Like when we, when we look at empathy, the first question that people have is like, why don't we have more empathy or why don't we have empathy for everybody? We're all humans. And it seems like based on Franz de Waal's studies and um, other studies about the, the evolution of in-group and out-group behavior, like we, we evolved over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, I guess more than that, if you're, if you're also looking at the great apes, right? Sure. To see, other groups that aren't like us as threatening, right? Yeah, it makes sense in an evolutionary speaking way. Right. And it's, <laughs> o- it's only in like the last uh, uh, 10, 11,000 years that we settled down and started forming cities. But even then there was in-group and out-group. People you didn't recognize were coming to kill you for your crops. So you needed to fight those people. You didn't need to empathize with them that, oh, you're hungry, so you're going to take my life. I understand, right? That didn't That didn't jive with natural selection. Right. But then you add jets into the mix, and then TV, and then the internet, and all of a sudden, we're exposed to more in-groups and out-groups, and are expected to get along more civilly than ever before, but our evolution hasn't caught up quite enough, right? Yeah. So now we're faced with this point where it's like, okay, we just need to figure out how to empathize more, and this last vestige that's holding back a completely civil global society will fade away. And Franz DeWall put it pretty well. He said... This is the challenge of our time, globalization by a tribal species. Yeah. And that's what we're facing right now. Yep. And r- right now, it feels like, at least in the United States, we're backsliding. Yeah. Well, that's a good place to take a break, I think. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to come back in just a minute and talk a little bit about uh, something called the racial empathy gap right after this. <laughs> All right, so I promised uh, some talk about race, and there's something called the racial empathy gap. Um, studies have kind of, I mean, 
if, if you walk around as a living, breathing hum, human being, you can probably tell that that's something. But they have done studies on it, and um, a lot of these studies are a little hinky to me. But uh, <laughs> in one, they showed video clips of a needle going into someone's skin, mm-hmm. uh, notably a white person's skin at first. And what they found was um, white people reacted uh, more or with more empathy when the needle went into white skin than when it went into dark skin. Right. Or they had they showed more signs of distress, like they started to sweat a little more. Sure. Or their heart started to beat a little faster. Yeah, that's where I think mirror neurons might come into play. Right. Um, right? Yeah, that's what they're... Like that's, it's brain wiring? That's a huge problem with reading about empathy in the popular media. There are huge jumps from mirror neurons to full-on effective empathy with just the, the switch of a sentence. Yeah. And then, or, or the, the stroke of a headline. Like, and so people are not talking about the same thing. And I'm sure there's plenty of empathy researchers out there that are just like, guys, guys, this is not, like, you're making huge jumps to the conclusion. Everybody's like, shut up, doesn't matter, we're selling clicks. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, sure. But so, yes, that's, so it is surely setting off mirror neurons. I don't understand how it's being translated into empathy aside from, I think a lot of the empathy studies involve self-reporting. Right. So I think what they're doing is they're saying, oh, well, uh, subject 1329, um, their heart really started beating. And look at this on this questionnaire they filled out. They really consider themselves an empathetic person. Ipso facto, an empathetic person uh, is responding very empathetically right now to seeing this needle. Yeah, like what if they showed uh, painted someone's skin green? Well, they have. They've done violet tinted, and actually, oh, to really? tell you the truth, as far as correlating with self reports, um, that that does tend to be uh, a pretty good um, control. To yeah. tell you the truth. Well, they didn't because apparently that all people respond to that one. Huh? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is actually. Um, there is something going on there, though. I mean, we're not like discounting that because right. they have done studies that show that. Uh, minorities um, maybe don't get uh, pain medication like they should compared to white people. Uh, and I don't know. It seems like a racial empathy gap is a pretty decent explanation for that. For sure. Uh, or in the criminal justice system, which we've talked a lot about. Uh, or maybe just in empathy altogether between races. So- yeah. So if you're if you're a judge, though, and you're you're not following sentencing guidelines. You're just using your own personal biases to hand out sentences and you have people's lives and futures in your hands. Yeah. You're not following the law. You're following your own bias. You're a piece of garbage. Well, that has I mean, nothing to do with you being an empathetic person or not. What about that judge who, uh, remember the guy, the swimmer who raped the girl by the dumpster? It was obvious that judge was kind of like, well, look at this kid. Like, Oh, I don't like, want to ruin his future. Yeah, I don't want to ruin his future. Like, that could have been my son. You know, He like, looks kind of like me. It was clearly bias and empathy going on because he was like him. Right. And there's no way, if that would have been some black kid, that he wouldn't have ruled differently. I just, there's no, no one can convince me that, that that's not the truth. Right. And I think that there's like there's another distinction that's eventually going to be hammered out too. like I don't think he was empathizing with that swimmer kid. Uh, If he was, I could be wrong. Who knows? But I think he was um, at the very least exhibiting a bias that, yes, he he let the kid off off the hook um, because he looked like him. I think he he, might have been sympathizing with him, though. Sure. Yeah. Because he even flat out said, like, this could ruin his life. Right. Yeah. He was definitely sympathizing, at least for sure. Boy, uh, so, um, going back a bit to, uh, philosopher Adam Smith way back in the day. Sure. Uh, I think was clearly talking about mirror neurons, even though he didn't know that was a thing at the time, when he wrote that, um, persons of delicate fibers who notice a beggar's sores and ulcers are apt to feel an itching or uneasy sensation mm-hmm. in the correspondent part of their own bodies. I mean, that's absolutely mirror neurons firing sure. off. Yeah. And we've been saying that a lot. If you don't know what we're talking about, listen to, uh, can great. you feel someone else's pain? Yeah, can you feel someone else's pain? It was from a few years ago, but it was one of my favorites we've ever done just because it's so fascinating. It really is, man. That the brain is wired like that. And it's it's <laughs> the reason why, and this is the you know, the easiest way to explain it. Like if you see like in a football game, someone's leg gets broken and you literally <laughs> yeah. feel like pain shoot through your body, that's those are mirror neurons. 
Did you see there was a Simpsons recently where Kirk Van Houten is back in college and he goes to like high five. He's like a lacrosse player. <laughs> he goes to high five the college mascot, which is like a guy in a suit of armor, and he breaks his wrist in like 50 places. And they show, they cut to the sideline and Joe Theismann takes his hat off and throws <laughs> up into it. <laughs> Man, I remember that Theismann thing. I think we talked about that in that episode. Yeah, I still, I don't think I still have ever seen it. You don't need to. I think I do though. Like, how can I be walking and talking through life and not have seen Joe Theismann break his leg? Well, it's one of those things when you see a a body get bent in a very unnatural, like, direction. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, your, your brain is hardwired to not accept that. I know. It's pretty, it makes you faint. Yeah. Because your brain's like, I can't see anymore. <laughs> Speaking of the brain, Chuck, um, let's talk a little bit about the brain, right? All right. So, um, one of the, we've already kind of touched on one of the issues that I think we both have with, um, empathy research is that the, uh, the, des- the designs of the studies are just so shoddy. It's mind boggling. Yeah. But then the other part of it's like, well, just leave it to neuroscience. But neuroscience is still using the same old, MRIs that it was before, and again, all it's showing is that's where more oxygen is in the part of the brain right then, so right. we're going to correlate that to that part of the brain being lit up, so that means that this part of the brain has to do with um, looking at pictures of boobs. This is the boob <laughs> region, right? And this is like the level that, that neurology is, is at as far as behavioral studies goes, right? You put these two together... This is the state of the art with with empathy research. But with the brain, as far as that goes, they have kind of isolated a few different parts. And again, this is kind of like we think that this has to do with this process just because in trial after trial, the same circuit has been followed or the same region is lit up when we've applied this stimulus to different people. Um, So there's a there's. There's good evidence that this this does have to do with, say, empathizing or whatever, but it it's still it's just a very it's a rudimentary understanding at this point. I think compared to say like 50 years from now, right? Right. So what what they've what they think they figured out is that there's a um, part of the brain, and I love parts of the brain. The effective <laughs> effective empathy part of the brain is called the insular cortex. That's where they think that the effective region or part of the affective region lies. Yeah, the anterior insular cortex. And then the cognitive empathy uh, is thought to reside or originate in the mid-cingulate cortex. Yeah. And actually, those came from a Monash University uh, research um, paper that's, that looked at the concentration of gray matter, the density of gray matter, and that's like the neurons, whereas white matter is like the connecting material, right? Yeah. Um, and so they're saying... People who have um, really effective empathy have denser in, uh, insular cortexes, cortices, and then people who have really serious cognitive empathy have dense mid-cingulate cortices. Right. That's where it's at right now. Yeah, they did a pretty interesting test. Um, this uh, Tanya, or Tania Singer and this dude named Matthew Ricard, He's a Buddhist monk, and I get mm-hmm. the idea that they picked this guy because mm-hmm. he can very much control his brains and emotion. Right. <laughs> so what they did was, he's a Buddhist monk, they did some fMRI brain scanning on this guy, and they said, all right, sir, Mr. Ricard. Um, he's like, please, call me Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, uh, we would like you to engage in some different types of compassion and uh, meditate and direct that meditation toward people who are suffering. And then they, they hooked him up to the, to the brain scan magic machine. And they, they found that the meditative states, um, it was actually surprising to them. It did not activate parts of the brain that are usually activated by non meditators, uh, when they think about pain. But he said, you know, it was, it was good for me, basically. It was a warm, positive state. And he said, all right, now put yourself in this, what, you know, they would call the emotional empathetic state. Um, and I guess he's able to turn that on <laughs> like a switch. Right. He's like, watch this. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> like blood just comes out of his nose. Yeah. And different uh, parts of the brain lit up. And he said this empathetic sharing uh, very quickly became intolerable to me. I felt emotionally exhausted, uh, very similar to being burnt out. So that's one of the big arguments against this emotional 
uh, or effective empathy is that you, you, you can't take on everyone else's pain like this. Let's say you're a social worker or you're a nurse or a doctor, like it's going to drive you insane. Oh yeah. Well, you'll, you'll burn out. It's called empathy distress. Yeah. And when they've talked to patients like hospital patients, they don't want that either. They won't, they want maybe someone who has some sympathy, but patients are more likely to feel better. <laughs> what? Yeah, I was just imagining a doctor coming in and just falling to pieces right. at your at your condition. Doctors aren't like coming. That. Yeah, well, you don't. Yeah, like you said, you don't want a doctor like. No, that. they they feel better if their doctor is kind of clinical and reassuring and really seems like they have it together. Right, which makes sense. Yeah, and you don't want somebody who's like, frankly, I could care less whether you live or die. Right. You want somewhere in between those two. Yes. Which which is where... Oh, my God, uh, you're going to die. Right. Like, you don't want that out of your doctor. No. But it seems like it, the middle of the, those two spec, the, the, those two ends of the spectrum is where cognitive empathy comes in. Yeah. Well, Chuck, how about we uh, take a break here, second break? That sounds good. And we'll come back, we promise. <laughs> All right, man. What do you want to talk about? Sasha Baron Cohen? I, I still have never actually looked up whether that's his brother or cousin or what. <laughs> Simon. I know they're related. Yeah, psychologist Simon Baron Cohen mm-hmm. wrote a book in 2011 called The Science of Evil, and he's he's way down with empathy. Um, yeah, big time. Yeah, and I guess it, they describe him as a, a thoughtful defender is what uh, Bloom describes him as of empathy. Right. Um, and he has a ranking system, an empathy curve, uh, from zero to six. And zero is no empathy, uh, basically you're a sociopath. And six is you, you, I guess the most hardcore of, uh, emotional empaths. Yeah. You're in a, you call it a constant state of hyper arousal. Right. And he had this one woman that he used in his little example named, uh, Hannah, who was a therapist. It's probably a great job for her. But she's just one of these people that, uh, it, by all accounts, is just wired that way. Like her friends and her family and her patients, like she just really feels for them all. Right. Like it's not just her job. Which is in in some ways that uh, it probably helps some people, but in other ways it's really probably, number one, off-putting. And even if everybody liked it, it's bad for her in the end. Like you, you, we're not, we're not designed to carry everybody's problems and issues with us all the time. Yeah. And that's kind of the main point Bloom is making is that people like Hannah are headed for, headed toward burnout. She's headed for heartbreak. <laughs> and he also does make the point that friends and family don't like, they need a certain amount of that empathy, but you don't want someone that's always like in that state. Like you also <laughs> want someone that's like, all right, let's, Turn that frown upside down and let's go out and take a walk. You know, like you don't want someone that always cries when you cry, you know? Right. And you're just going to be like, oh, <laughs> I thought I had a bad. But, and, and you can extend that also to, um, the way that people react in some ways to say like a mass tragedy or something like that. Right. Like look, look at Newtown, right? The Sandy Hook shooting. 20 small kids were killed. Six adults were also killed at the elementary school. It was the most Horrific tragedy, I think, that ever took place in the United States. It was basically the one that everyone who uh, believes in very strict gun control was waiting for, was knew, knew it was going to happen sooner or later yeah. and thought this is going to be the tipping point. And it didn't happen, right? What people reacted to with was outpourings of donations. Yeah. Lots of stuffed animals. Apparently, there were three for every resident of the town were sent. Stuffed animals? Um, yeah. And, um, lots of thoughts and prayers. And if you ever have seen, um, you know, Anthony Jeselnik. Yeah. He's great. He, he, yeah, he has a Netflix special. I think it's still on called Thoughts and Prayers. And you watch that <laughs> and he explains to you just how valuable your thoughts and prayers are, especially on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but th- th- Paul Bloom points out is like, this actually 
proved to be this outpouring proved to be an additional burden on this town, which is already suffering tremendously. But like they had to, um, there was something like 800 volunteers who were tasked with handling all the donations, um, whether it was stuffed animals or money. And they apparently had to get a warehouse to put all the stuffed animals in. And I think even some of the public officials were like, please stop sending us stuff. Send stuff, but send it to other people. We've got everything we right. need. Send it to other people. And everyone said, no, shut up. This is about us, not you. And yeah. I think that that's part of um effective empathy, that outpouring of stuff that seems like a nice gesture that makes you feel better, but doesn't actually help in in any real substantial way yeah i think that kind of underlies or betrays what um what effective empathy is all about and what why we are moved to do something with effective empathy because we're feeling something right then uh-huh. and it, writing a check or sending a teddy bear is a good way to to feel better yeah for us to feel better whereas cognitive empathy would be like um i'm going to see to it that every senator who blocked the gun control bill following Newtown right. is voted right out of office. Right. That would be cognitive empathy. You're empathizing with the, the parents. You're empathizing with future kids who uh, haven't been killed yet, and you're going to do what you can to make sure it doesn't happen rather than writing a check um, or sending a teddy bear. Those, to me, are the, the real distinctions between cognitive and uh, effective empathy as far as that ultimate goal is concerned, which is, again, compassion. But compassion is doing what you can to improve the outcome for the greater good. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, another thing that, um, kind of jumped out to me was, uh, these psychologists, Vicki, uh, Helgeson and Heidi Fritz, mm-hmm. uh, they were researching why women are more likely, uh, I think twice as likely as men to get depressed and experience yeah. depression. I saw that too. And they thought, you know, they said, you know what? I think it's because women are more empathetic and, and, you know, emotionally empathetic and they take this on. And, uh, they said that there's a propensity for what they called unmitigated communion which is, an, quote, an excessive concern with others and placing others' needs before one's own, end quote. And they, you know, gave people, and this is one of those, like, a nine-item questionnaire, how much can you really learn? Right. Um, but uh, some of the statements, agree or disagree with, were like, for me to be happy, I need others to be happy. I can't say no when someone asks for help. Uh, often worry about others' problems. And kind of across the board, women score higher than men do on this. And... um you know, I think a lot of that probably has to do with, with evolution too, with, uh, you know, women having to care for their babies right out of the gate. Right. Tuk, which is Tuk Tuk's wife, at, you know, although Tuk Tuk, we know, never took a wife. Right. Um, <laughs> Tuk Tuk got around. <laughs> he got around. But the women that Tuk Tuk would, would knock up. <laughs> right. They would immediately be in charge of those babies. And that's what, um, that primatologist talked about too was, you know, this is kind of straight up evolution. Uh, or natural selection is right out of the gate. We have this empathy because we have to care for young. Right. And then, um, and I think we already mentioned too, and then that definitely evolves into uh, protect the tribe. Right. Because we're better off if the people around us are healthy and happy and ready to ward off attacks. Yeah. Um, but the, the idea that women are more prone to experience, say, effective empathy. Uh huh. Or just even empathy in general. It's actually got a, it has a biological basis to tell you the truth too, Chuck. Um, in, in adolescence or puberty, apparently girls have, they score high for effective empathy throughout their entire adolescence. Where between about ages 13 and 16, boys' effective empathy declines. Yeah, they take a little vacation. Yeah, and they say, <laughs> become, oh, 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 you feel bad? They become well, jerks. <laughs> you're about to feel worse because I'm going to give you a swirly. Yeah, I don't know what a swirly is, but. It's uh, it's where you stick someone's head in the toilet and flush. Oh. No, swirly. Never heard of that. Fortunately, I'd only heard of it. Never <laughs> witnessed it or uh, had it done to me. We did noogies and... Uh, was it wedgies when you did the underwear? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, they're terrible. They are terrible. And that's right. bullying behavior. <laughs> uh, and there are some theories about bullies, too, that they actually use empathy to manipulate people. Uh, like, they, they'll use it against them. Well, yeah, when yeah. Bullying. They, they, they used cognitive empathy to calculate the 
the best, most effective way to hurt somebody. And then, um, they turn off any potential, like, effective empathy, um, when they're actually carrying out their act of bullying. Yeah. And with the teenagers too, they, they say that if you develop effective and cognitive empathy, um, that you're going to be happier. You're going to argue less with your parents. Uh, and you're going to have more healthy relationships, which, you know, kind of all makes sense. Sure. And they also were saying too, and we, we'll, we'll get into how to increase your own empathy if you think that kind of thing's a good idea. Um, but that babies learn empathy out of the, out of the gate by being empathized with, by being treated warmly by right. their parents and other adults. Yeah. Being responded to in a warm manner. That that actually is the beginning of empathy. And it's like you said, you can see a little kid in a preschool go over and comfort or console another little kid. Yeah. Um, who's in distress. Boy, that's why when I hear about neglect, like baby and infant neglect, it's just, mm-hmm. oh man, that's like the most heartbreaking thing you can imagine. It's like a, yeah, it's, a baby just like left in a room to cry and cry and cry yeah. for, forever. Plus also, I mean, when we were talking about the breastfeeding episode, that body to body contact of being held shows or has been shown to affect their development if they don't have it enough. Yeah. It's just all sorts of terrible things that happen to you when you're neglected as a baby. Yeah, it's terrible. So, Chuck, there are plenty of people who say, well, we need to empathize more. So just get out there and learn how to empathize. And there's plenty of people out there who will teach you techniques on empathizing with people more. And they may be worth trying. Like, I found them very helpful in a lot of cases, especially on interpersonal communication. Right? But as far as like changing the world on a massive scale for, for the better, is it a good idea to go out and just empathize, empathize, empathize? Because there's a big question mark with that. Who exactly are you supposed to empathize with? Like with just about every problem, there's a group that's being helped by something and a group that's being harmed by something, especially when it comes to public policy, right? Yeah. So which group are you going to empathize with? If you empathize with the current victims and you change public policy to help them, well, then you're leaving the people who are currently benefiting out in the cold, right? Right. So there's a big question of who you should empathize with at any given point in time, which makes this whole behavioral science nudge politics BS that is ultimately behind this whole push to empathize more. Um, that That's not taking that into consideration. And then there's this kind of a second facet to that, which is studies have found that when you increase empathy in people, um, they tend to empathize more with their own group, but it also in kind increases hostility in those people toward out groups. Oh, wow. You know what I'm saying? Like they see their friend who's being hurt as more of a victim and how could you huh. do this to them? And now I want to get you back because one of the sour sides of empathy is that it frequently comes with a, a taste for retribution too, I think is how Paul Bloom put it. Wow. The dark side of empathy. So just, yeah, there is a dark side. There's a dark side to everything, isn't there? Yeah, except you. <laughs> I'm all dark side. <laughs> You're all light. Thanks, uh, man. That was very kind of <laughs> So we'll finish up here with a bit on uh, people with autism because there's this stereotype um, that if you, everyone's probably heard it, that you know what, people with autism lack empathy. And they don't understand emotions. And if you know anybody who uh, either has autism or is a parent of a child with autism, they will dispel that myth pretty straight up just mm-hmm. from their own lives. Um, but these people did some uh, studying and some research because they were like, that's not good enough for me. And it's not good enough to just say that, like, you know, every autism is different for everyone. Right, and so some can, people have empathy, or sure. some people with autism show empathy. So, but everyone's different. So, who cares about investigating that? Yeah. So, I really love the approach they took here. They were kind of really wanted to keep digging, um, which I really respected. So, uh, they said, you know what? I think it might be going on here. There's this other um, condition called uh, alexithemia, and alexithemia means you have a difficult time understanding your own emotions. So, you might. You know, you might have a feeling that you're experiencing an emotion, but you just don't know what it is. And about 10% of people have it in the regular population. About 50% of people with autism have alexithemia. Right. But they're not the same thing. No. 
And these guys actually found that um, people with autism who do not have alexithemia tend to display empathy. Yeah, and even, you know, lots of empathy. Right. Lots of empathy? <laughs> yeah, empathy. They got binders full of empathy. <laughs> binders full of empathy. That's a callback, huh? Oh, yeah. Um, Boy, remember when that was the most controversial thing going in politics? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Finders full of empathy. Uh, yeah, like they had, they scored, you know, uh, very strong when it came to measuring empathy. Uh, and what they did was they, and you know, that makes sense the way they did it. It's very, I really like this study. Mm-hmm. They had four groups, uh, individuals with autism and alexithemia, uh, individuals with autism without it, uh, individuals with alexithemia but not autism, and then people that didn't have either one. And it basically seems to kind of prove that, yeah, it, it's just not true that people with autism don't have empathy. It's really alexithemia is what's going on. Right, which is, I think, a novel finding or a novel hypothesis. I don't think this is part of a larger field. I think these these guys came up with that. Yeah, and did you see that other study that, um, from Goldsmiths, University of London, about the mm. facial expressions? Yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting, too. Yeah, that they, they investigated that, um, if you expose, uh, people with autism to the sounds of people's voices and ask them to rate what emotion that person is experiencing, they're far better at, um, calling that correctly than faces. Yeah. And apparently it's because people with autism tend to spend much less time studying faces, not because they can't empathize. They just aren't using cues that um, people without autism use to um, conclude what emotions people are experiencing. Yeah, really interesting stuff. And I don't know why this didn't get more play, because it still seems like people are kind of banging that drum that, you know, people with autism aren't empathetic. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why either. It just makes sense. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. Um, we need to do an entire episode on autism. Yeah, maybe alexithemia. I never heard of that. We also need to do one on psychopaths too, which is another group that tends to be pointed to as kind of incorrectly as far as empathy goes, where if you're lacking empathy, you're a psychopath. Where it actually turns out that if you have what's called a shallow affect, right. meaning like you're across the board emotionally, you're pretty stunted and um, shallow or superficial. That's what really qualifies you as a psychopath, not just missing empathy. Right. Um, but yet again, it's another popular misconception that's being allowed to persist. I'm just irritated, Chuck. I know. I've got a great quote, though, from Paul Bloom. And I also want to say that I think um, that empathy also, the different kinds of empathy also get divided among the uh, genders as well. And we even said, we even talked about that study that concluded that women tend to suffer from depression because they're more empathetic. Right. I think that maybe that's the case and there is a biological basis for it in adolescence. But one thing that seems to persist everywhere is that um, different types of empathy or different techniques for empathy to produce empathy can be learned. They can be taught. Yeah. And I think if you just say like, well, wait a minute, I really want to solve this problem. I'm not going to fly off the handle or I'm not going to lose my marbles. I'm going to like really put some thought into it and I can still be compassionate, but I don't have to completely experience someone else's pain. I don't think that that's a, a biological imperative one way or another. I think if you decide to make a, a, a choice or a change in the way you approach situations, that has nothing to do with gender. So right. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. And as far as teaching empathy, like there's been a little bit of poo-pooing of emotional empathy, but I think it's, I think it's definitely like a pretty good thing to do as a parent to try and teach your child to like, hey, you know, how would you feel if someone was doing this to you? Yeah, and um, that's how they learn. Yeah, exactly. You don't learn it on your own. I think it has to be imparted by good parents. Agreed. And um, again, the 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 goal, and this is a Paul Bloom quote: the goal isn't. To, to love every single person like you love the, the people closest to you, but to value other people just for the very fact that they're human beings, right? That's right. the goal that everybody's looking for with, with empathy. And he says, quote, our best hope for the future is not to get people to think of all humanity as family. That's impossible. It lies instead in an appreciation of the fact that even if we don't empathize with distant strangers, their lives have the same value as the lives of those we love. That's the key. Very interesting. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. We should subtitle this one, 
Empathy, a loosey-goosey episode also <laughs> known as What Paul Bloom Says. <laughs> Thank you, Paul Bloom. Yeah, big big ups to Paul Bloom. Uh, and since I said big ups to Paul Bloom, that means it's time for listener mail, Chuck. Um, I'm going to call this uh, Hookworms. Nice. Um, hello from the sunny South United States. Uh, Southerners aren't lazy and dumb. They just had hookworm. Great title, by the way, Josh. Thank you. Uh, brought back a childhood memory, and I finally had to write in, guys. Grew up in Florida, so we spent most of the summer with our shoes off. Uh, and I remember my mother uh, distinctly reminding me to wear shoes uh, so I wouldn't get the ground itch. <laughs> this never happened. I called my mom, who is now 88 years old, to verify a few facts. And uh, about when I was a little girl, I believe around five to seven or eight years before school started, my mother would give me a worm treatment on my feet. Uh, I explained to her what I'd learned during the podcast about hookworms and how they affected the body. When I mentioned how they cause severe anemia and cause the body to be more susceptible to illness, she remembered a story about my father's cousin. Uh, apparently, the cousin was so and became so incredibly ill, she was very close to dying. They took her to the hospital and found out she was severely anemic. And before they began any other diagnostics, they decided to test her for hookworm. And bingo. As my mother said, she was full of them. She had a high worm burden. <laughs> she did. Uh, Mom said it took three treatments to get rid of the worms. The story was she was so infested, they literally came out of her mouth when she was being treated. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, that is the best story I've heard in a while. <laughs> and she put in parentheses, I know, right? Because See, I think she anticipated that reaction. That's why you don't want to be a, a 6.0 um, effective empathetic person. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this cousin is actually still alive and in her early 90s. So uh, <laughs> this would have been in the 1940s. I hope she doesn't listen to this show. <laughs> uh, hookworm and Fancy Free in Florida. That is from Terry Brunson of Panama City. Nice. Thanks a lot, Terry. That was a great email. It had everything. Had a, it was a roller coaster ride. There was a cousin who had worms coming out of her mouth. Yep, I laughed. I cried. There was a mom. All old, sorts an of old great mom, stuff. an old, uh, an old cousin. I'd like to know what the worm treatment consisted of. I'll bet there was dead cat in there somewhere. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, if you want to tell us about your family's weird remedies, we want to know the ingredients. You can tweet them to us at SYSK Podcast or hit me up at Josh underscore Um underscore Clark. Uh, you can hang out with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff you should know or facebook.com slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Uh, send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com and join us as always at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. <laughs>